morning. Scripture reading this morning is James 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. Uh, Pray with me, if you would. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us uh, wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds might be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, it is, uh, it is good to be back. Thank you so much, again, for asking about us. To, just to answer all your questions, uh, Joanna's doing great. She's healthy. She's growing. Elliot is doing great. She loves being a big sister, and she's a great big sister. Uh, we are sleeping terribly. Uh, that's basically all the questions. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series in James, in the book of James, and you'll notice this is only week three in James, but you've probably noticed already a few things about him. First, he's very blunt and direct and to the point. James doesn't delicately tiptoe around things. He just, blam, subtle as a shotgun, tells you how it is. And we're going to get more of that today, and we're going to get a lot of that throughout uh, the book of James. Secondly, you may notice he seems pretty ADD. It seems like he's talking about one thing, and then, oh, look at that over there, and whoo, all of a sudden, we've completely missed the point. It seems that way, and in fact, a lot of writers and scholars who study him have said that there's really no discernible point to be found in James. I think they're wrong, because there's a whole other group of scholars who say, no, actually, if you dig deeper, if you start peeling back more and more layers, you start to see threads that connect everything. So even though things may seem random, and even though it may seem he's jumping to a wildly new subject, they fit together. Case in point, last week when Ron preached, he preached about suffering and trials. The, the, the key verse, the verse that sticks out in our minds, maybe some of you have memorized it, is this. Consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He talked about testing and suffering and trials, and and Ron pointed out very helpfully that James says, consider it joy when, not if, but when you experience trials of many kinds. James is all about maturity. That might be one of the scarlet threads that runs through. How do I grow and become more mature in my faith? And many new or young Christians or immature Christians, when they, when they get hit by these trials, it just levels them. They come across these suffering, and it just absolutely destroys them. And they think, wait a minute, I thought following God was supposed to make things easier. I thought following Jesus was supposed to make things more comfortable, was supposed to make things more, and I feel worse. Well, in fact, Jesus never says that. 
In John 16, Jesus says very point blank as well, in this world you will have trouble, period. <laughs> and James is keying in on that when he says, consider a joy when, not if, when you experience trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. We understand that the, the joy isn't just surface level, like Ren and Stimpy, happy, happy, joy, joy. You know, it's, it's something much deeper. It's an understanding that even though the whole world is bleak and dark right now, God is behind it bringing light into the darkness. And that helps us to persevere. It's a joy that can say at the same time, this is absolutely miserable, and I trust that God is working through it. But all of a sudden, James veers off into a completely new thing and says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What in the world does wisdom have to do with, with joy in suffering? As it turns out, it has a lot to do with joy in suffering. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Because some of you, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online, uh, either are going through or have gone through incredible pain and suffering. You've, some of you have, know what it's like to lose a spouse. Some of you know what it's like to lose a marriage. Some of you know what it's like to lose a child. It's a loss that absolutely nobody should have to endure. And, and in those deep, deep, deep moments of darkness and suffering, you might very well think, and I don't blame you for thinking this way, you know, Chris, I get that James says consider it joy. I just, I'm just not there. And I know that you said that if I just have a little bit of perspective and try to understand that this is developing perseverance, that can help, but I just, I, I just can't. Just being honest. Where do you go from there? It's almost as if James is, is reading your mind because he says, okay, here's where you go. Here's where you go. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. This morning, we're going to see the connection between wisdom and suffering, and we're going to see it by asking three questions. Number one, why is wisdom important? Why does it matter in the first place? Number two, where does wisdom come from? And number three, how do we become wise? Why is it important? What's the source? Where do we get it? And how do we get it? First, why is it important? Why talk about it at all? My aunt and uncle live on the Chesapeake Bay, and they've got a big, feels big to me, 30, 35, something like that foot sailboat. And um, especially growing up, they used to take it out a lot, and they used to take our family out for little rides around the bay in this sailboat. It was, we had a great time. And I remember one sailing trip, we were going, and we were making pretty good speed. And all of a sudden, the way the, the boat was facing and the wind pointed, I don't know, Jay, you could explain it to me. But the boat started to, to tip, and it tipped more and more. And until, it seemed to me, I was probably 8 or 10, so, but it felt like at least 45 degrees the boat was t And we were going forwards, but we were going like that. And, and I immediately freaked out, and I jumped. So, so if the boat was kind of tilting to the left, then I jumped on the, the right, the high side, and I had this plane. So eventually I knew the, the wind was going to just push the boat over, and I was going to jump over the high side so I didn't get stuck in the sails and in the ropes and everything. And, and then it, 
It occurs to me now, I didn't think about anybody else, but that's neither here nor there. So, so here I am, and I'm on the high side, and I'm just white-knuckling the seat, like leaning back, trying not to fall in. And meanwhile, my uncle, who's a very experienced sailor, kind of casually saunters. I don't know how he did it because the boat's tilted. And he sits on the low side. And it has, the boat has seats that face inward. So he sits on the low side like that. And he makes a big display of oh, hands behind his head and crosses his legs with the water rushing by. I mean, no more than a foot from his head. And the water was, must have been inches from spilling into the boat. And he, he knew exactly what he was doing. He said, Chris, you have to understand this boat, this boat's not going to tip over. I know you think it is. But this boat has something called ballast. A ballast is a weight in the bottom of this sailboat. And the more the boat tips over, the more the weight actually wants to right the boat. Think about it if, um, if you were to hold a very heavy weight in your arm, the more, you know, as the boat tips, the weight lifts. So the more you lift a heavy weight with your arm, the more it wants to pull your arm right back down. And a combination of the ballast and the fact that when the, when the boat is tipping over this way, there's less surface area for the wind to grab hold of. If you have good ballast and an experienced sailor, the boat, no matter how far it's tipping over, will not capsize. It just won't. My eight-year-old self was certain that I was going to have to jump over out the other side. But my uncle, the experienced sailor, understood that because he, well, one, because they knew what they were doing, but two, because the boat has ballast, it will cut right through the water, even if it looks like it's going to tip over. Wisdom is ballast. Wisdom is ballast in our life. It's that thing, it's that weight, it's a gravitas that says, even though you feel like the boat is going to tip right into the water and you're going to be sunk, it, it just won't. The ballast doesn't care what you think. In fact, the ballast doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. The ballast doesn't operate based on the laws of your faith. The ballast operates on the laws of physics. And physics demands that the ballast will keep the boat upright. You see, this is why wisdom matters. Because wisdom is ballast. It's what keeps the boat upright, even if you don't realize it's working in the middle of the storm. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now notice James, he could, have, he could have written, if any of you lacks perseverance, he was just talking about, he said, consider it joy when you experience trials because testing your faith develops perseverance. So ask God for perseverance. But James doesn't say to ask for perseverance. He says ask for wisdom. Why change the subject? You ever met somebody who's been through an awful lot of suffering, but if we're being honest, probably wasn't very wise? How does a lifetime of suffering without wisdom shape a person? Makes them bitter, makes them salty, makes them short. We've all met these kinds of people who are just bitter about how life turned out. See, you can have perseverance without wisdom. But wisdom inevitably produces perseverance. So when we suffer, when we're in a moment of trial, what we want, but like my gut when I'm suffering is, God, take the pain away. And that's not a, it's good to be honest. Like that's not a bad prayer. Just know that God very seldomly answers that prayer the way you want him to. <laughs> a better prayer, if you want to call it better, might be, sure, God, give me perseverance in this. 
But it's not just about perseverance, because perseverance is just about how can I get through? Wisdom, on the other hand, asks, God, what are you doing in this? It takes the lens off of me and it puts it on God. What do you do in these moments of deep, incomparable suffering? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. For what? Not to take the pain away. And I mean, Sure, pray that. Not, for, not just for perspective or for... Per- no, pray for wisdom, he says. There's a pastor who died a couple years ago, Warren Wearsby. He wrote this, God does not help us by removing the tests but by making the tests work for us. Satan wants to use the tests to tear us down, but God uses the tests to build us up. You see the difference? There's a musician who took the same phrase and just wrote it differently. He wrote, we don't pray for a lighter cross, but a stronger back. We don't pray for a lighter cross, but a stronger back. So in seasons of suffering, sure, you could pray for perseverance. You could ask God to take the pain away. Sure, pray it. But the better prayer is this. God, I need wisdom. I need to learn to look for you, even in this absolutely suffocating darkness. I need the ballast that will keep my boat upright in the middle of this storm. You See why wisdom matters? So where does it come from? It's kind of an easy answer, but let's, let's just go ahead and dig into it a little bit. If any of you like, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Again, it seems obvious, but it's very important to remember that James doesn't say that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him look within himself, or let's be gender inclusive, let her look within herself and, and find it and think and meditate and get some perspective. No, he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, if any of you lacks wisdom or perseverance, let him just stick it out. Just get through it. Hang in there. Don't give up. And eventually you'll have some perspective. The source of wisdom is not internal. The source of wisdom is external. Namely, from God. Because God is wisdom. I don't have a lot of time to to flesh this out. I wish I had more. But, but just let that idea sit there and don't drop it because we're going to come back to it. God himself is wisdom. Wisdom, true wisdom, comes from God. You can't be, let me take it one step further, you cannot be truly wise apart from God. You just can't. Now you may be thinking, and this is a good thought, Chris, I know some people who, who want nothing to do with God and actually are pretty wise. And I I know those people too. But there is a limit to their wisdom. So it's not to say you can't be wise at all, but you can't be truly wise apart from God. There is a limit to a godless wisdom. Eventually, it will always fall short. Here's why. Because God's wisdom runs completely counter to the wisdom of this world completely counter. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. Let me just read you a couple, of, a couple of verses. They're kind of all over the place, but in 1 Corinthians. And as I read them, listen to what Paul says about the relationship between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. You ready? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Number two, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Number three, the foolishness of God is wiser than any person is. Not the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than any person is. And the weakness of God is stronger than any person. You get the point? Let's do one more. Number four. God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. You see what he's saying? First, see what he's not saying? Paul here is not saying that God is, God, God's wisdom is wiser than human wisdom. He's not saying God's wisdom is just more wise. He's saying it's, it's so fundamentally different that God's wisdom makes the wisdom of the world into foolishness. It's categorically different. This is consistent throughout Scripture, by the way. In Isaiah 29, here's just one more example. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. God alone is the source of wisdom because God himself is wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. The reason that's important is because it gets, again, it gets the lens off of me. To believe and to practice and to live as the wisdom comes from God and not from myself necessarily means there's a degree of humility that I have to recognize I, I can't be wise on my own. Wisdom and humility, in fact, are tightly interwoven. If wisdom is a red thread and humility is a blue thread, you probably just see like a purple fabric. Because it takes a lot of humility, doesn't it, to ask someone, anyone for help? What's our favorite phrase in New England? Nope, all set. Don't need help. I'm all set. I'm all set. I'm all set. How many times do you hear that? I've started saying it since it's a wonderful phrase. <laughs> but how many times do we, we hate to admit that we need anything externally from anybody else. So to, to, to pray and to say, God, I, you know, I'm, real, I'm not wise, takes an incredible amount of humility. Which gets us to our last question. How do I get there? How do I, in fact, become wise? James gives a very simple answer. Look at verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him, what? Ask. That's it. Just ask. Ask God. Who gives what? He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Just ask. I want to make a couple of notes about the, the phrase ask or the, the thought of asking God for wisdom. One is very subtle and one is pretty obvious. Here's the subtle one first. James is writing in ancient Greek and Greek, uh, the way Greek verbs work, they just have a little more nuance baked in that we don't have in English. So this doesn't communicate. But I want, this is very important. You can, you can make a Greek verb uh, have something called aspect. And aspect indicates if an action occurs lots of times, like continuously or one time. So it's the difference between saying, I'm going to Market Basket later today to pick up a couple things, and saying, every Tuesday morning, I go to Market Basket and I do my shopping for the week. One time, one and done, now it's over. Or ongoing, repeated, over and over and over and over action. When James writes, when if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, ask is the second, the ongoing, the repeated, the over and over and over. Here's why that matters. 
Because God doesn't want us to just shoot up a quick Hail Mary when things start to get heated. Say, God, just help me out real quick right here. How many mature Christians do you know whose prayer life is just a, a couple of Hail Marys here and there, just absolute desperate? No. No, let him, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask and ask and ask and ask. Every single day, ask God for wisdom. And it will be given over time, slowly, gradually. It, if, you could get, if you thought you could get wisdom just by asking once, one, and done, and then you're on, it's, it would be like a boxer who thought he could win a boxing match by starting to train the day before the match. You know anything about boxing and how, for one boxing match, which lasts not that long, you know how long boxers train for one match? Months and months and months and months of conditioning and of strength training and and of all the other things that they do. You don't get ready for a boxing match in a day. You will not have wisdom to overcome the trials of life with one quick Hail Mary prayer but ongoing, repeated, over and over, ask and ask and ask, and God will generously give it to you without reproach. One more note about asking, and this gets to this, really to the, the bulk of this passage in terms of word count. If you just skim over this, this sounds pretty harsh, but I want to show you that I don't think it really is. In other words, how do we ask? He says, be single-minded, not double-minded. Let me just read this, and then we'll flesh this out a little bit. Look at verse 6 again. When he asks, when the person asks for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Sounds harsh, I know. But let's not skim over it. Let's, Let's really sink into what is James talking about. First, he's not saying that intellectual doubt is wrong. There are a lot of really honest, good, robust intellectual doubts that we can have about the faith that God wants us to take right to him. He can't be saying that intellectual doubt is wrong or else he would be contradicting the other authors of scripture. Read the Psalms. Have you ever read the Psalms? My God, have you utterly forgotten me? If that kind of doubt is wrong, then that might be what James is talking about. But that would mean James is contradicting the whole book of the Psalms. Or think about Jesus, who on the cross asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's doubt. James, unless unless we want to say that James is just flatly contradicting Jesus, that can't be what James means. So what does he mean? We find about it when we read a little further. That person is a double-minded person unstable in all they do. It's almost like being double-minded. I looked it up because I thought maybe, the, maybe the, the original language will give us some insight into it. Um, kind of. The word double-minded, you know what it means? Someone who has two minds. <laughs> well, that wasn't helpful. I was hoping for some really good insight there. It's, it literally means like two minds. He just smooshed the words together and you get, you get DSUK. So, so what do we do with that? Somebody who has two minds, somebody who's praying, thinking like I'm praying because I probably should ask God for this because somebody told me, but I don't really believe he's going to come through. Somebody who says, I'll, sure, I'll ask God for wisdom, But on the side here, I'm going to do what I think is best because I just, God's wisdom seems a little bit far-fetched. That's what double-minded is. 
That person is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. You see, no ballast. Just, well, I hear this, so I'll do this. Oh, I hear that, so I'll do that. But the wisdom of God is single-minded and unified. Essentially, in other words, what James is saying, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, seek the wisdom of God because God is wisdom. So when you seek wisdom, you're seeking God. When you ask God but don't really believe he can do it, you'll start looking elsewhere. You'll start resorting to other sources of wisdom, and then it turns out you're really not seeking God at all. But remember, God gives generously. He gives generously, lavishly, over the top to all, without finding fault. God doesn't criticize us. He doesn't shame us because we're not wise. In fact, he loves when we show the humility to say, you know, God, I I don't have this wisdom. I need something from you. He loves it. God, make me wise. And then watch as he does. You see? If God is wisdom, then to pray, God, make me wise, is to pray, God, fill me with you. Fill me with your spirit, with your wisdom. Make me like you. That's a prayer, friends, that God loves to answer. That's a prayer he loves to answer. Let me just give one last caveat, and this is kind of a warning. If you pray that, you will start to look very strange to everybody around you. Think back to 1 Corinthians. Let me just read for you 1 Corinthians again, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. This is what Paul says. God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world the despised things, even the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Where do we see most clearly, most obviously, the brilliance, the wisdom of God's foolishness? Where do we see most clearly in all of history the victory, the power of weakness? At the cross. At the cross. At the cross, Jesus became weak, so weak that he died. He subjected himself to death. That was foolish, wasn't it? If you ask, ask anybody, you go to the street and ask anybody, how do you build a kingdom? Not one, I guarantee you, not a single person will say, get a group of 12 nobodies, get them to follow you, teach them a couple things for three years, and then go die. That's foolish, Right? right? Yet God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Every other kingdom, every single other kingdom has come and gone. Go all the way back in history. The Hittites, the Egyptians, the Incas, the Aztecs, the Greeks, the Romans, the Medo-Persians, like the Babylonians, kingdoms that people thought were forever. Every one of them has come and gone. And don't be so mistaken that you think any present kingdoms will last forever. We went, um, y'all been to the air show? We went to the air show yesterday. You've seen, we've all seen, heard the planes practicing. What an incredible display of power. Holy smokes. It's just chilling. But think for a moment 
that God chooses what is weak in this world to shame what is strong. God chooses what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. As amazing and powerful, even as all of these jets are, and they're, they're, go see it, it's incredible. And everything they symbolize, they will not last. Only God's kingdom, only God's power, only God's wisdom will last. There is one kingdom that will last forever, and it's the kingdom of God. And it's a kingdom of giving, not of taking. Because Jesus gave, he didn't take. There they go again. It's a kingdom of self-sacrifice, not of self-preservation. Because Jesus didn't seek to preserve himself. He sacrificed himself, do you see? It's a kingdom whose king says, blessed are who? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to become wise? (laughs) Do you want perseverance? You want to be able to endure suffering? Die to yourself. Die to your little attempts at wisdom. Die to your own understanding of how things should be. Die to your own preconceptions and misconceptions. And in humility, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. If you trust your own wisdom, you'll be a little skiff in a big storm, battered by the waves. You'll probably capsize in a couple minutes. But trust the wisdom of God. Trust the wisdom of God. You'll have ballast. No matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter how it looks, you will persevere. Let's pray. Lord, we need to trust your wisdom. And and, I mean, even as I preach, I think of areas where I'm prone to trust my own. This is much easier to preach than to practice. Sounds great in a sermon, but it's much harder to flesh out in life at work or in school or at home. But Lord, give us wisdom. Give us the humility to realize that wisdom doesn't come from inside of us, but it comes from you. So help us to seek you. And when you show us what is wise, even if it looks foolish, give us the courage to follow you. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.